This is the River Radius, a cultural nexus of rivers, people, and boats. I am your host, Sam Carter. Welcome. But then the end happened, and I just don't know, I don't know how I'm feeling right now. It's like, because we took the dory out, and and it, I just felt so rich and so full. Everything just kind of happened towards the end, and I, it doesn't feel complete yet. It, it, I just don't know how I feel. It's a weird feeling. I thought I'd have all this clarity and, okay, this is exactly how life is going to go at the end of this trip. We're, I'm going to be so full of answers. And if anything, I have more questions, you know, just craving that, that feeling of being back out there and not know, not really knowing what to, how to bring that peace back into day-to-day life from here on out. This episode of The River Radius is a story of two people, a married couple, traveling the Green River from its headwaters in Wyoming to its confluence with the Colorado River in Utah and then to the Colorado's undefinable end at Mexico. Jenny and Mike Feebig took five months off from their daily grind life to visit a river, to learn about its way, and to get to know themselves again. The Green River has a rich place in the opening of the West and the beginning of Western river running as we know it today, and this history is important to Jenny and Mike. Jenny works as a mental health professional with her own private practice, and Mike works as a river conservation director for American Rivers. The River Radius was able to travel for a week with this trip on the Colorado River and conduct two interviews there. And then upon completion of their trip down the Green and Colorado Rivers, Jenny and Mike met with the River Radius again at our studio in Colorado for a post-trip conversation. We were able to have an audience for one interview on the river with questions from that audience. All of these recordings are done outside and most in cold, windy weather. Because of this, there is some wind distortion and changes in vocal character. We start off with Jenny and Mike telling us their final details of the trip. What day did you say you started? August, August 8th. 8. August yeah. 8, 2018. You ended on what date? December 21st. Yeah. 2018. How many days overall for your trip? I think it was 138. On the water, okay. How many miles? 1,775. How many different boats did you use? Packraft and Dory. One Packraft or two Packrafts? Two Packrafts. So yeah, we three each, pa- boats we each paddled the Packraft and then <laughs> and you had the green we had the Dory. Dory. Okay. And we had an inflatable sup along with us on, on some of the stretches too. What'd you do? Well, we started up in the Wind River Range in Wyoming, um, outside of Pinedale. We started at the, we drove into the Green River Lakes and, and so we started hiking from the lakes it was about, what, 20 miles from the lakes up to the headwaters. So we hiked up to about 11,000 feet in search of the headwaters of the Green River. And we didn't really know exactly where that was. We kind of found the, I mean, we found the named uh, Green River coming out of Dale Lake. And we just said, that's where we'll start. We had to go to pack rafts for the next 40 miles mm-hmm. and basically pack raft down to uh, Houston, H-U-S-T-O-N, uh, rather than like the Texas. And uh, the Houston put in was still really rocky, but that was the place that we thought we could probably, by the time we got down there, we're like, ah, oh, there's enough water to scrape and push a plastic dory mm-hmm. <laughs> through the upper green till the new fork came in. And it wasn't until the new fork came in, which was, what, a week later probably. Yeah, about that. 
that that it actually felt like a real river. It mm-hmm. felt like every time we we'd we'd pass a a side stream coming in and we'd get more water, we'd be like, yes, you know, it'd be like this mini celebration, and then there'd be a big irrigation ditch taking it all back out, and we have to do some more scraping and lining and pushing and of the dory. Yeah, the upper green was a lot of scraping, and it, I mean, it's beautiful up there, and we hit Fontenelle Dam, which is our first reservoir. Took, took just a couple days to row across Fontenelle. It was really windy, so we'd have to row really early in the morning mm-hmm. at first light. This is still Wyoming? Still Wyoming. still Wyoming. Yep, and uh, below there, it's interesting, looking back at it now, you know, we've been talking a lot about when so by the time we hit Morelos Dam at the Mexico border, you know, months later, the river had basically died. You know, it was just this little trickle. And we've been talking a lot about, you know, when did the river start to feel like it was, you know, death from a thousand cuts. And it actually started way up high, you know. Like when we got to that first big reservoir, it was a really noticeable break in the ecosystem. You know, the river felt like a free-flowing natural river above there with gravel bars and everything even with the irrigation diversions it felt like a natural uh like you could see the remains of a natural hydrograph and and uh river channel and then starting below fontanelle never felt the same Mm -hmm. as the upper green above that um but you know we'd go through these larger sections of of free flow in between dams and it'd get some of its character back and things would come in, you know, tributaries like the Yampa and tributaries like the New Fork and, um... But, yeah, like you said, the break in the ecosystem was very noticeable. Birds and wildlife, it, you know, it wasn't the same around that reservoir as it had been just a few miles upstream. And so you're, you're doing this trip. Are you running it like a normal river trip? You come to camp, you set up, you break down... What's the yes and the no to that answer? Um, the yes is yes. <laughs> We're, um, yeah, every day. We've had very few layover days, but yeah, we get to camp, we set up, make food, go to bed pretty early, usually between 7 and 8 at night, and get up early the next day and keep going. Um, the no of the normal river trip is that we just keep going. You know, when people take out, you know, we've had friends join us along the way, and they put in and take out, and uh, we get to go from source to sea. To the shore is your boat. Would you tell us about your boat? I look at this thing and I see it as, as quite a hybrid of boats. A very interesting boat. Would you tell us about your boat? What's it called? What type of boat is it? What's going on over there? Yeah, so it's a plastic hulled, aluminum decked, whitewater dory named the Green River. And the name, we went back and forth on a lot of names. I mean, I, I wanted to call it the Humpback Chub because I think it's kind of so ugly it's cute and it's <laughs> I, I, and I like the idea of you know kind of the tradition of naming things after either endangered or threatened um, but my thought was the boat she's not beautiful <laughs> that's not what I would use to describe her and I think the humpback chub would have been a little too much for her so she needed an elegant name the humpback chub was too pretty or too not pretty too not pretty <laughs> 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 so so we, we we were looking one of our thoughts, our alternates was the seed skiddy, the one of the native names for the Green River. Because a lot of this this expedition and, and you know the headwaters and a huge portion of it is, is the green and um, and that comes into the name of the expedition too, the one river. Um, 
And uh, so surprisingly, we were, we were digging around and we were looking at in Mike D. Hoff's garage at the list of all the dories he has hanging in his shop and and searching as best as we could on the dory pages online and no one had the Green River. Um, and the green does fit, I think, more and more the, the, the threat of an endangered piece of water in general. Um, so it fit, it fit in a lot of ways. It's an interesting boat. So when we decided we, we decided we were going to do this journey a little over two years ago, almost three now, we didn't have the craft. We knew that we needed something that would do well both in flat water and do well in white water. And it didn't have to do all of them perfectly. It, uh, as, as our, our, our friend Tim Palmer says, it's a, it's a 70% boat, you know, <laughs> and you got to make up the other 30% in, in, in your own. Um, but it, it works really well for that. So I was on a Yampa River trip with the owner of Hog Island Boatworks out of Steamboat Springs, John St. John. And I was telling, kind of workshopping this trip with a lot of folks on that trip and, uh, and workshopping the dory idea. We didn't know where we'd get the dory yet. And we knew we wanted a dory. We didn't know what it'd be made of. And he said, hey, I make roto-molded HDPE plastic uh, drift boat hulls I think it'd be good for you so we started talking about that and kicking it around and we knew we wanted it decked we knew we wanted to be able to live in out and around of, around it then I started asking around okay so if we were going to get this thing decked who who should I talk to and Mike Dehoff and, and Eddie Line Welding came up out of Moab and, and uh, I gave Mike a call and uh, there was no real hesitation in Mike. He said, yeah, I'm, I'm really interested in what you're doing. Um, let's talk about it. Let's, uh, this sounds really cool. Um, and uh, went from there. And so the boat has four big dry boxes that sit in like the decking of a, of a, a brig style dory. And then three compartments that are not dry. We have a, a huge front compartment that holds four big rations boxes, breakfast, lunch, uh, dinner, and staples. And our repair kits fit way back in there really tight and well too. Um, our side boxes have a mix of fuel and kitchen and electronics and binoculars and whatever we need for the day potentially and to pop out we, we cook a lot on the boat quite often um, when we're moving along and pop out the jet boil while someone's rowing and make some tea or some some soup and, um, and then uh, the rear box is uh, has a lot of electronics here too, and, and it has a lot of our permit gear too so it's got fire pan great uh, major first aid kit um, computers, uh, other electronics gear, uh, cold weather gear, extra tufts, uh, wag bags, toilet paper, like you name it in this big back coffin box. And then the very back of the boat is, is open uh, well with a cargo net. And in that goes our roller table, Jenny's guitar, our groover, our uh, two big NRS sleeping pads, um, our dry bags, and then on the very stern is a, is a pin kit rigged back there. Um, no we, cooler. And no cooler. Um, it just didn't fit well on the boat. Uh, too big. 
ice doesn't last long enough anyways for a lot of our stretches, so it would have ended up being a dry cooler anyways. Next in our Riverside conversation is the topic of reservoirs. From here at my studio, I want to make a few comments about these reservoirs. These reservoirs are the human-created lakes that sit right in the river's path and are there because a dam has been built and is holding back the river water, therefore creating a reservoir. The reservoirs are created to provide a steady supply of water for human use and consumption and to create flood control. Ginny and Mike encountered 11 reservoirs on their source-to-sea journey. They spent a total of 23 days rowing across 378 miles of reservoirs. That 23 days is about 17% of their entire journey. The reservoirs they navigated are Fontenelle, Flaming Gorge, Powell, Mead, Mojave, Havasu, and five smaller reservoirs as they closed in on the Mexican border. Here is what Mike and Ginny have to say about their reservoir experiences. We, we had a hard time getting people to join us on the reservoirs. <laughs> we didn't we get anyone. We haven't been successful yeah. yet. Those have been solo. Yeah. <laughs> they have been solo. Tell us about the reservoirs and why, why you're not going, why you're not driving around the reservoirs. They're an important part of the story. You know, the, the river used to run underneath the reservoirs. And so it's just, it's a lot of energy piled up behind a dam. And it's interesting to watch the ecosystem change from the river ecosystem into more of a lake ecosystem. Um, so it's an important piece of the story. Yeah, the, the, we, we feel like just from, a, from a, if, if we drove around them too, it wouldn't feel like, if we, if we drove around the reservoirs, to me it wouldn't feel like it was a contiguous expedition. You know, it's uh, like Jenny said, it's part of the story and it's it's part of what used to be here and it's part of what is here now. Tell us about what it's like to row across a reservoir. What are you doing? How do you approach those days differently than you do these days where you're buttoning up everything? And yeah, tell us about those days. So you set your alarm for like 4.30 in the morning because <laughs> I don't wake up naturally at 4.30. Um, pack up, pack up in the dark, have everything ready to go and... You know, we're usually shoving off like an hour and a half after we wake up, after packing everything up. And it's 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 actually really peaceful. I want to say I hate the reservoirs, but I don't. I mean, there there's a beauty to the ecosystem there as well, I guess. Um, it's just really glassy on the water. It's quiet. No one's up and around. Um, and we just start rowing. And uh, usually in the morning we don't have music just because we like to hear the sound of what's around us um but then about you know a few hours into it when we're starting to get tired and we do hour shifts so I'll row for an hour then Michael row for an hour um and we can get the boat up to about three three miles per hour sometimes four miles per hour if the wind's at our back but then we start getting tired around 11 and we turn on some music and jam (laughs) and that gets us through till about two or three that's when the wind starts to pick up usually yeah and our goal is usually to be off the water just after noon um the other interesting thing is and we we get this on the on the river sections too we've had some the uinta basin for instance and some other stretches have had really tough headwinds it's been a warm fall the convective winds have been really challenging um so whether it's the, the free-flowing parts of the river or the reservoirs, when we get up really early, we have our best wildlife sightings. So, um, and that's been even magical on the reservoir pieces. At the head of Flaming Gorge, we came around what used to be a river bend, and uh, we caught the mule deer 
migrating up off of the bottomlands into the high country for the day after being there all night and the pronghorns migrating down after a night in the uplands for a we assume a drink and shadowing the pronghorns coming down this ridge were four coyotes in a pack watching the pronghorns watching them move down the ridge and it was just this really special moment let's go back to the music <laughs> what's the what's the the top hit that you're listening to that's like Eye of the Tiger? You <laughs> playing? <laughs> I, I made all these mixes, and um, I kind of copied them from Pandora, so it's like, uh, oh, I can't even, just like funky, like, like beat music. I, I don't know. I don't, I'm not good at genres. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, we've got this mix, and some of it depends on what we, what we feel like. You know, we go through bluegrass moods mm-hmm. and uh, Americana, and then we switch on the, the more electronic or uh you know to especially when the wind starts picking up or or the motor traffic <laughs> you need a little extra extra adrenaline boost for that um if i'm pissed off at mike then it's definitely electronic like, <laughs> like okay. oh, i didn't up. know that that's <laughs> what yeah. i searched for that. oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. duly noted <laughs> yes you should note that <laughs> The group that had convened to travel with the Phoebix through Cataract Canyon on the Colorado River, including myself, left them where the river meets Lake Powell, Reservoir Powell as Mike calls it. I still have this vision of their boat getting smaller and smaller as it traveled down the river current into Powell and we all drove off with our vehicles. My next encounter with them was back home on social media, and I was particularly interested in their next 150 miles across that huge reservoir. After they completed the Reservoir Crossing, they posted a story about an unexpected meeting of humans they experienced right there on Reservoir Powell, and I felt this was a great story to share with all of you. Tell me a story about meeting people you didn't know. And I know the story only because you posted it on Instagram. (laughs) Something about a group of guys and a houseboat and dinner (laughs) and music. Yeah. Oh, yeah. This is day four or five into Powell. We're right before... Into Reservoir. Day four or five into Powell. Yes. Which means... How far into the trip? Oh, that's... It's probably day day 80 to 90. So we're we're kind of getting hammered by weather on Powell. It was... We were expect We were like, oh, it's going to be like 70 or 80 and sunny and amazing. And it wasn't. It was rainy and windy. <laughs> yeah. And, and most of our days we had to... What were the temps? Probably 50s. High of, high of 50 in rain during the day. Mm-hmm. Down just above freezing at night. And not short showers. I mean, no, like... Downpours. Which Pounded. we didn't expect mm-hmm. uh, because of a, a weather system that came through. But anyway, so we, we it was actually a warm day that we were paddling and we were psyched about it. It was our first nice day. Yeah, we saw otters earlier that day, and but we were rowing. It was we were just before the the well the old confluence with the Escalante, and we were, our our goal was to get around the Escalante and camp there. And it was getting dark. I mean, it was like six or six thirty. We're both tired ready to find camp and eat our beans and rice and 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 we needed to find it before dark and this was this was a we had to put in a really big day because we were behind on mileage because of all the weather and uh and and we were we we're aiming for this series of coves on the map and and we we passed one of these coves that i really had my eye on and there's this houseboat beach there, giant rental houseboat with all these guys on it. Damn and I was it. like, they're in our spot, and it's almost dark and kind of complaining amongst one another. Houseboaters. Yeah. 
and and then and then the houseboat starts yelling to us. These guys are waving their arms. They're like, "Hey, come here, come over here." And at first, and we're like, "We don't see you." <laughs> yeah, we're like, "Wow, it's dusk, and a group of twelve guys in a houseboat are telling us to come over." We're like, "This is the start of a B B grade horror movie." <laughs> but they keep yelling, and they're like, "We'll feed you." They're like, and "Dinner's I'm, up." We kind of come perk over. up at that, and we're like, "Well," and we're like, "Well." And, and we're, we're trying to give them excuses now. We're like, you know, we've really got to go find a camp. And they're like, you can camp by us. <laughs> we kind of look at each other and like where they can't hear. We're like, should we do this? Does, does <laughs> Is this seem all right? Is this safe? <laughs> and we're like, well, we had, we had made this pact with one another. We're like, oh, we're going to say yes to opportunities. Like, we're going to say yes to opportunities that people present to us. And so we kind of look at each other we're like, well, saying yes. I mean, should we say yes? And we did. It was saying yes is that, so you're saying yes to opportunities is an agreement on the trip. Is that something that you didn't normally do in your life? That you felt like this is the time to crack a new kind of style or is this just some? I think we're so used to being in, I mean, we live in Bozeman, you know, like we live in, we've lived in so many communities where we're surrounded by skiers and, you know, kind of a lot of like-minded folks. And, and we're like, we're going to be exposed to people doing different activities than us. And so I think for us, it's saying yes to, to meeting individuals across, I guess, the recreational but, culture. Mm. And so they're like, hey, come come camp with us. And we kind of look at each other like, mm. so if, if it seems sketchy, we can always, it's a calm night, we can always row away, you know, and like go find a different place to camp later. But we're like, let's go do it. Like, they seem like nice guys. They're, let's see what these guys are doing so we start rowing over to this cove and they start singing an acapella <laughs> to us and wow what were they That's singing really good some river song that yeah like, yeah some, like three or four of them i don't know the name oh. of it but it was really pretty and really impressive <laughs> we're getting serenaded as we're rowing in we're like so we, oh this is interesting yeah so we we dock where we tie up and get out and there's a guy, he's he's Iranian, and he's making this amazing Iranian mm. meal. Like saffron rice and chicken. and. <laughs> so they sit us down, and they amazing. give us cold beer, which we're like, whoa. <laughs> we're like, this is a, I'm glad we said he, yes. <laughs> he plates full of nice, amazing hot yeah. food. And one guy's getting a fire going, and like they're all just the nicest guys. And so we start talking to these guys, and they ranged in age from about, 60 to mid 80s and they're a men's group out of salt lake that met like 18 years ago and one week every year for the past 18 years they come from all over the place and get together and just like share their music and their art and and a lot of these guys have really different kind of day jobs so but they're i'd say they're all bound together at least from our perspective they're they're all artists and poets and musicians and they all supported each other in that but you know some and it was it was it was an incredible evening it was beautiful yeah just being serenaded um it was it was pretty spectacular it was really powerful nothing i thought i'd ever experienced especially on lake powell you know yeah um and so broke broke down a ton of stereotypes for us um Mm -hmm. which i think the theme of this trip too but those guys were just it was one of the coolest chance meetings Mm -hmm. we had in the whole trip and we just left that evening so inspired and felt so supported by these folks and 
Yeah, it was. Yeah. And I think the other thing that came out of it was really uh, looking at reservoir-based recreation in a different way. Mm-hmm. Because we, we talked to those guys a lot, and the same reasons that they were drawn back to Lake Powell year after year were a lot of if you applied those same reasons to the river, you know, like what pulls us into river trips every year? Solitude, sleeping under the stars, exploring beautiful side canyons, being on a water's edge, water's, you know, such a magical medium, and like all these different things were the same things pulling those guys back into a houseboat every year to camp with one another and being with their own tribe and making their own culture and like, you know, cooking meals together out under the stars and having campfires. And it's a lot of the same things we seek on, yeah. on multi-day river trips. They were just doing it from a houseboat. At this point, I'm doing something new with my world of audio recording and river trips. I was able to meet and travel with the Feebigs along with 13 other folks who were also coming out to meet and support the Feebigs on their long journey. One morning, we set up an interview and also had a bunch of chairs set up for an audience. The audience was made up of the members of the trip. I sat with the Feebigs and asked them some of the questions which you have heard, and then we opened up the questioning to the audience. Next, we will hear from the youngest members of that audience, Quinn and Willow, and Terry will have the last question. My name is Quinn, and how did you plan this trip? That's a great, great question. There are so many pieces to this this question. Um, we started planning, as Mike said, three years ago. Mike has Mike gets a sabbatical once every seven years with American Rivers. Um, so we collect, we had um, 120 people apply for a Grand Canyon permit, and one person got it. Lindsay, thank you, Lindsay. <laughs> and so once she secured that permit. Then the next permit to secure was Lador. And so we had 80 people apply for that permit. And one person got Lador. And then? So we knew we wanted to do a fall trip for a number of reasons. Um, we, you know, if you start in the, the you, our, our choices were either summer or fall. Um, and, you know, if you start up in the Wind River Range, uh, the, for those familiar with the winds, the winds are incredibly buggy. Uh, midsummer and incredibly snowy as well in early summer so we thought the idea of a fall trip was perfect um, you know we'd follow uh, late summer early fall all the way south and it's worked out really well so we we picked this Grand Canyon date and you know you get a range of dates and then uh, after after doing our ideal uh, you know Google Earth mapping and kind of trying to estimate how many days each section would take us. Um, We went over it multiple times and then landed on these Grand Canyon dates. And then from the date we actually got, then we had to figure out, you know, how many days did we need to get from Lador to the Grand through reservoirs in case of storms, meeting friends, restock days and logistic days. And then, and then, get that and so on so we we kind of linked up all these permits together and that part we took one entire weekend you know from like late friday night all the way through sunday mile by mile yeah um, looking at google earth and maps yeah and trying to estimate the, the amount of time you know to 
for a five-month trip over over almost 1,800 miles, what we need. And and uh, so our goal was we, I had to wait till I couldn't start my sabbatical before August 1st because <laughs> August 1st was when it was seven years since I started at American River, so I couldn't start before that. And then we figured we needed to be done by uh, Christmas in Mexico. Um, for fear that if we rolled over past the holiday, um, we might get stranded down there when everything shuts down over the holidays. Hi, Willa. Um, why do you want to go on such a long trip? For me, I, I, you know, I've wanted to go on a source to see on the Colorado for a really long time since since. Since I learned first learned about the Powell Expedition, the Kolb brothers, Holmstrom, other folks that have done these massive trips, and this river is the birthplace of whitewater boating. It cuts through one of the most spectacular, unique places in the world, the Colorado Plateau, and something that is really close, near and dear to our hearts. We, we met working on the plateau and I really, I'm, I'm also really drawn to the idea of source to sea trips and kind of this through paddle concept. I feel like, you know, if more people knew their rivers from where they started and to where they ended, um, we'd probably treat our rivers better. For me, I've noticed when Mike and I met, we were both working in the wilderness quite a bit and working in the backcountry. And there's just a different connection out here that you get we kind of moved away from the backcountry and it was kind of killing both of us. Um, you know, financially having to put each other through school and working so much to pay off student loans. And I mean, you just get into this rat race in our culture of you need to buy this in order to feel happy or do this. And so you just get into this, this cycle. And uh, just our, our culture is so inundative with material and buy things and debt and it's it's and even there's a lot of anger in our culture just it's just yeah we both needed this clarity when we met 15 years ago we were both living out of trucks and living month to month and working seasonal jobs and and actually you know we'd have these conversations like we never want an office job we're never you <laughs> we'll know never like, buy a house <laughs> and, and and then you know we found ourselves 15 years later where we we both had, we'd both put each other through school and we both had office jobs and, uh, and a home and, and, uh, and we're like, God, how did we get here? I'm Terry and um, we've uh, joined you on this little section of your trip and it's been just so great to get to know you. I've known you as really amazingly cheerful, intelligent, fun, competent people. And I wanna know what's been really difficult what, you know, has there been something really off the wall or scary or anything that's happened for you? Well, Terry, I think as a mental health professional, you'll you'll get the you'll get this. Um, I, for me, I I deal with depression, and uh, I think for me, like in the front country, it's easy to avoid it and easy to like like escape it and get lost into work. Because I can I can tell clients all day long, oh, just face it. <laughs> And they're like, how? And I'm like, oh, just do this, this, and this. And then I've tried doing that. I'm like, that doesn't work. <laughs> so, um, yeah, the clarity of being able to really look at mental health, like my own mental health out here, um, 
and then having my partner witness that and and really he's like well what do I do I'm like don't fix it like I, I don't know it's just like stop doing what you're doing <laughs> but yeah having my partner really witness that and really witness as I face it um, it's not easy um, but it's uh, yeah it's been challenging you know we've been really lucky I mean we haven't dealt with some of the the hardships that we've we've anticipated before you know I mean we have we have a really super duper repair kit in case we broke our boat we have you know we have extra days brought our uh, built in in case we really got hammered by storms um, but we haven't had a lot of the environmental issues yet I think some of the the difficult things for me is you know when you're when you're on a boat uh, uh, out in the weather and and rowing most for the most part except for some of our portage days 68 days now um, we tend to bicker and we <laughs> tend to fight and and sometimes those uh, those bleed over into multiple days <laughs> and so so that's challenging kind of that expedition expedition behavior and expedition culture piece just amongst us um, we know how to push each other's buttons really well <laughs> at this point um, and then some of it I think at this point too you know for a long while for for two months of 90 plus degree weather and high winds we felt like you know, like like our faces were just old leather. We are just, it was really challenging to not get too much sun every single day. And then, you know, the, the about a 10 days of, of rain, challenging to keep everything dry and dry it out again. So there's that normal stuff that, you know, we've all experienced on, on long trips. But it starts to wear on you a little more when you don't have the, the recharge time. We were just talking this morning like, oh, we really need a layover day at this point. The Green and Colorado Rivers start high in the mountains in the middle of the North American continent. That water from the headwaters goes with gravity towards the Gulf of California, which is nooked between mainland Mexico and the Mexican state and peninsula of Baja. Without political borders, a map will show you this river system as a blue line reaching that Gulf of California. In reality, it's a different story. This river doesn't make it to the Gulf anymore. On top of that, mix in the layer of immigration and poverty that hovers at the shared border of the United States and Mexico. These are not the conditions most people encounter on their personal river trips. Well, guess who did encounter these conditions? Yep, the Feebigs. Right on the border. Tell us about this. Yeah. So we took out the dory. Above Imperial above Dam. Above Imperial Dam. And so we had to pack wrap the last bit. The river Imperial just Dam gets too yeah. small. Is where? Mm -hmm. That's, uh, it's on the Arizona-California border. It's about It's right 40 above. miles up from the... I can't remember border. from the border. Yeah. With Mexico. yeah. Okay. There's Imperial and then um, the American Canal. The All-American um, Canal comes, comes out, out right there. So the, so the river... It's small. Yeah, it's like 80% of the water's flow goes into an irrigation ditch. Mm -hmm. And only this, this thing that in Montana people would call a creek continues on. Yeah. Okay, you're cruising down in your pack rafts mm -hmm. and you get to Morellis Dam. That's the border. So, so yeah, we're pack rafting, and we have a friend, James, join us for this last little bit because he's, he's done a lot of these sections. And um, we start paddling, and we see the dam. And so on the right side, river right, it's the Mexican border, and you can see all the total poverty, you know, and, oh, gosh, it was... Because there's communities, people living right there at the river's edge. Yeah, you start paddling toward the Morelos Dam, and there's a whole section where... 
Mexico and Arizona are are bordering uh, north and south to the Colorado River, and it's called the Limitrophe. This section of border um, continues on for a while before it just flows into Mexico below Morelos Dam, mm-hmm. and the border kind of jogs back and forth to either side. And people told us as we were coming down there, as we were asking both our colleagues in Mexico and our friends in Mexico and people we met in the United States, that this section was dangerous. And there had been some incidents lately, and not I'm not dangerous sure. with rapids. No, no dangerous with with desperate people seeking yeah. a better life for themselves, probably in the United States, that are struggling to survive there. Mm-hmm. And we could see some of these folks camped out along the river, using what's left of this river, this tiny trickle of water that smelled a bit like pesticides and herbicides for bathing and cooking and everything else. And like, you know, little tarp shanties. And we had heard a story about a couple weeks earlier about an incident with the border patrol there, people throwing rocks at them and then someone lit a tree on fire. And so there was some unrest going on in this area. Brand new razor wire put up soon after that. Yeah, you could see some fresh fortification of our border fence um so here we are in these alpaca rafts you know i mean they're not cheap boats and like obviously like next to just you know people with just the clothes on their back and probably fleeing violence in their home country farther south in the americas and here we are paddling past paddling for recreation it also seemed pretty insignificant what we were doing Mm-hmm. when faced with people that were migrating across mm-hmm. North America and South America for their lives. Did you boat the whole way to the ocean? No. No, we, we the river had pretty much died before it got to Morelos, and I don't begrudge Mexican irrigators for taking the last little bit Americans leave them down there. Um, but anything that gets past Morelos Dam is seepage, you know, like... The river disappears. It leaks around the dam a little bit, but not purposefully. It's not, it's not flowing past there purposefully. So our original plan was to get to Morelos Dam, walk across the U.S.-Mexico border at Los Algodones mm-hmm. with pack rafts and backpacks, and do a combination of walking the old river channel and paddling the little bit where we could, knowing that the chances of us being able to paddle anything before where the Rio Hardy comes in and the estuary basically starts, you know, basically the last 20 to 30 miles out of a hundred was, was pretty slim. We'd basically be carrying the pack rafts. We quickly got talked out of that by folks because of the situation on the border, especially right near the border in this limitrophe section. Um, Situation being the, the people who are migrating. Correct. Okay. And, and, and we saw a number of folks that looked like they were seeking political asylum waiting in line. And we ver- verified this with some of our Mexican colleagues in the town of San Luis, Rio, Colorado, which is another border crossing. And they were primarily women and children, women and children and really kind people dressed really well, sleeping under tarps in this giant line waiting to be processed for, you know, seeking political asylum in the U.S. from violence. These weren't the folks 
These, those were the folks that we assumed were this migrant caravan we've been hearing about in, in the news. These massive amounts of beautiful, laughing, kind-looking women and children and, and, and fathers and young men. The folks on the, in the Limitrof on the border area didn't seem like the same Mm-mm. folks. And these were, these were probably more younger men on their own in a more desperate situation. I don't know where they came from or what their history was, but we were told by our friends in Mexico that, well, for one, we were told as a joke at first, they're like, oh, don't go, don't go paddle or, or don't go hike where the water disappears below Morelos because we joke that there's too much lead in the water and too much lead in the soil up there and meaning there are too, much, too many too bullets, bullets, too much gunfire. So we were told that by a friend in Mexico and then we were also told by the folks that are doing some of the restoration up there that they only go up there when they can have at least four big men that during the day that can guard them from some of the, the more desperate folks up there and that they don't even go as, as you know native Mexicans that live in the area and speak the language and culture. They don't even go there at night. So they, tell, they told us really quickly, they're like, don't, you, you shouldn't try to walk that even in the day. And there isn't going to be any water for you to paddle anyways. And you shouldn't do what you were planning. The reality of this situation kind of met the idealized view that we had when we were planning this trip. And we're like, oh, no, we're being, we just didn't have the information. And then this was cemented in, you know, when we went over to Mexico and, and spent time with the amazing people that are trying to restore little segments of the former Colorado channel with what little water is available so that birds and plants and animals and people of the Delta have a cool, green, clean refuge amongst this dry, burnt-out, salted Delta that once was one of the most ecologically fecund places in North America was just profoundly moving. And the amount of amazing work that folks down there from Pro Natura, Noroeste, and Sonoran Institute are doing with the tiny bit of water in the old river channel and water that, yeah, I, it's unbelievable. And it's so little. There's so little left. The resiliency and the, the wisdom and just, you know, the Mexican people down there, they all work together to, to work with what they've got, you know. It's amazing. They do so much with so little. Yeah. Mexico gets, I think it's 1.5 million acre feet out of the Colorado River Compact, which is tiny out of the... I think it's 14.5 million acre feet in the compact. So it's just this tiny bit, and most of it's used for irrigation. And a lot of that's used for for cotton and some other commodity crops that people are just barely eking by down there and are having trouble with salt issues and having trouble with not enough water and having trouble with infrastructure from earthquakes and 
it's just a struggle yeah, down there to make a living. Loss in crops over the years mm-hmm. due to loss of water. And then the group of folks that are coming together on top of all of that, on top of the struggles to survive, are coming and, and have a, a, an economy and a thriving economy there that are coming together with compassion and integration with local farmers and communities to make these these places along the river at least resemble somewhat of the former ecosystem. And there aren't very many of them, you know, a handful of these spots over the course of the almost 100 miles between the border and the, and the gulf where, where the river used to flow. Um, and there are only these little places left, and, and man, they're doing magic with it. Mm-hmm. We saw more bird life and more life in general in those few places, Miguel Aleman, Laguna Grande, La Cienega de Santa Clara and some of the others that, that then we saw in most of the other places of the Delta, you know, which is vast amounts of sand and agricultural crops and people struggling to get by. And did no. you go to the Delta? We, we did. The Delta. Yep. Yeah, we drove to the Delta. We drove to the estuary and played around there for the better part of a day, but we didn't, we didn't walk there. So the it's interesting, the river trip and the human-powered exploration ended at the border at Morelos Dam, but we didn't walk the whole Colorado River Channel. So what's, what, what's happened to you two? So we've talked about the logistics, the river trip, the reservoirs, the changing perspective around reservoirs, the people you met. But what has happened to you two? What's happened to you? <laughs> what's 140 days divided by 30 is four and a half months. Five months, we'll call it, because there's a little bit of planning and post-trip going on. What's happened to you in five months? So, I can't. I'm I'm still in that reflecting state. So, I, but I'll, I'll I can speak to. You. Before the trip, I was frantic, stressed, <laughs> like so much happening. Because um, of your own lifestyle, or because of preparation for the trip? Uh, lifestyle, um, you know. First of all, disconnected from self working so much you know it's like got to put in time and so working a lot planning this trip so the logistics of the trip and everything it was just frantic and you know discombobulated just like like spinning then we get on the river and it takes about a month to slow down you know to your mind goes from the spinning you know what am I going to say what I'm going to do you know this what if to finally when you're on the river it everything just slows down and so feeling really peaceful and calm and really connected and lots of clarity coming from on the river and and like feeling really connected to self to other to people joining us like everything just felt slower and calmer and so but then the end happened and I just don't know I don't know how I'm feeling right now (laughs) it's like because we took the dory out and and it, I just felt so rich and so full and then with all the yeah just everything just kind of happened towards the end and I it doesn't feel complete yet it, it I just don't know how I feel I feel the best but I don't know it's a weird feeling I thought I'd have all this clarity and, okay, this is exactly how life is going to go at the end of this trip. We're, I'm going to be so full of answers. And if anything, I have more questions, you know, and I just want to be on the river. 
it's going to be hard to go back to work, but I'm excited about going. I, I don't know. I'm, as you can tell, I'm just kind of just, yeah, I don't know what this feeling is, but just kind of flustered and just craving that, that feeling of being back out there and not know, not really knowing what to, how to bring that piece back into day-to-day -day life from here on out. I don't know. That's where I am. <laughs> yeah, and you know, I, I really love what you just said, Jenny, about the the slowing down on the river. And I think we hit the end still feeling like in our full swing. You know, we didn't hit the end of the expedition feeling like, whew, now we've got the end and now we get to go home. We hit the end feeling like, oh, going. yeah, we can keep going. I feel pretty good about this life we're living right now even though it's not real, even though it's, you know, draining all of our savings and like we've saved up for this and it's like this this thing with this finite end. The end was never the focus. The end wasn't the focus. It was the, you know, to borrow, a, you know, the Buzz Holmstrom quote, it was the doing of the thing that was the focus. It wasn't meeting the end. And I think that's why we were okay with the changes for Mexico too because the thing that was so beautiful about this for us was the doing of it was the being out there on the river every day and watching the changes from this trickling headwater snowmelt to this big raging river cutting through, you know, some of the most amazing canyons in North America and unique ecosystems and incredible friends and acquaintances and people we met. And like, those were the things that were nourishing. It wasn't like the goal at the the end it was the living it along the way and uh and then when you reach the end you know if the end isn't becomes not really the goal and you reach the end um you know that you reach the end of living that way that you've come to really love and cherish i don't think that that experience of living on the water for almost five months will ever go away and uh, I don't know what lessons I've learned exactly from it yet or how to apply it but I just know that like for me it's one of those things that you do in your life that's you're like oh yeah this was <laughs> and you kind of I kind of know it at the time like like oh this is really important for me as a human you know and like my life's arc like this is something that's really really special and important and what that means, I'm, I'm not really sure yet. But I just know that I'm not the same person as when we left on this, and I don't really know what that means. For you two as a, a couple, you've been married 11 years? Yeah. Yeah. 11 or 12, something like that. It'll be 12 this next year. Okay. Yeah. We'll, we'll call it 12. Yeah. yeah. You've been together longer. Um, <laughs> How how is your how is your relationship different? Hmm. Um, <laughs> that's a good question. I feel a lot closer to you. Yeah. Um, you know, being able to spend you know so many hours on a boat, <laughs> like only having a sup to like escape from you. You know, like I you just can't you can't escape. <laughs> so it's forced us to really sit through the hard things together and um so i feel a lot closer to you um 
yeah I, I feel like we really reconnected in a lot of ways mm-hmm. you know um it's interesting you know I feel like we've been really supportive of one another in our professional careers and our lives and like our home is this great space and and we eat a lot of meals together and stuff you start doing your career and and like you end up not seeing each other a ton um and then we've it's going to be interesting to go back to our careers and go back to traveling for work and other things and not see each other as much when we've we've been together every single day since you know early august and uh and granted we need a little space we've we start there's a little bit of cabin fever boat fever of us being stuck on a 16 foot boat and and bickering with one the, another the a little points i mean it's it that that bar is raised a little bit like we we can get frustrated faster with each other yeah but overall the the, the connection piece is really cool mm-hmm. it's really neat i think we you know like i see jenny in a in a different refreshed light now after this trip which mm-hmm. is really really cool you don't you don't get that chance with your partner much either you know well and all i mean I've, i'll speak for the therapist part of me but I'm the couples therapist and everyone grows and changes and all relationships morph and change and they're never the same and i feel like this has really given us a chance to take our relationship and grow together and in a way that we could never have done before it's a good point and so we've been able to grow together in a really beautiful way i think it's a nice reset in a lot of ways you know it's a reset with your with your body and your mind personally and then interpersonally with your partner you know it's a it's like when you spend five months with someone on a little boat doing this this thing you get to know each other more again you know like we're not 22 anymore you know we're not the same people we were at 22 and so it's like i got to meet mike again at 44 and you met me again at 38. This episode of The River Radius was recorded and produced by me, Sam Carter. Huge thanks go out to Ginny and Mike Feebig for sharing their story, and also to the people who made up the audience for us on our trip. You can find The River Radius by name on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Instagram, Facebook, and our website. We are always looking for more great show topics and leads on river culture. You can reach us by email, hello at theriverradius.com. More episodes are available online. Thanks so much for joining The River Radius. We had an inflatable sup along with us on on some of the stretches too, but it was more of a a way to save our marriage. <laughs> yeah, to get <laughs> to paddle away, <laughs> and do something age. different. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Thank God for the sup. <laughs> That's what's up. <laughs> that was bad. Um. <laughs> but so good. Yeah. <laughs> You guys haven't been around people much. <laughs> no, we haven't. We haven't. We haven't. <laughs>